Those of you who know me best know that I am a Christian hedonist. That means that I think my desire to be happy is a proper motive for doing everything that I do. I do what I do because it will make me happier in the long run. In fact, I think that if I abandon that quest for joy, I will neither be able to worship God nor obey Him. For what is worship but the expression of delight in the beauties of God's perfections? And what obedience does God want other than cheerful obedience? Each one of you must do as he has made up in his own mind, Paul wrote, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for the Lord loves a cheerful giver. The words of Flannery O'Connor are my words. She wrote in a letter to a friend, Picture me with my ground teeth stalking joy, fully armed, for it is a dangerous quest. Or consider Jonathan Edwards, a man after my own heart. In the early 1700s, he was in college, and he wrote for himself 70 resolutions. Number 22 went like this, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence that I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Now really, Jonathan, violence? Surely you've gone too far. But Jonathan responds, well, I've only gone as far as Jesus. Don't you remember Mark 9? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Make joy in the, in the kingdom your aim. And if it costs you to cut off your hand or your foot or to gouge out your eye, do it. A Christian hedonist is a person devoted to maximizing his own happiness and who has learned how to do it from the Bible. Now, it's possible to talk about Christian hedonism, understood in this sense, in relation to every aspect of the Christian life. But I want to zero in on one aspect this morning, namely humility, and see how these two things relate. I want to show, if I can, that Christian hedonism is a tremendous barrier to pride and a great help to humility. So three things. Number one, I want to show why humility is important. 
Number two, what's the nature of Christian humility? What does it look like when it's happening? And three, how is it that being a Christian hedonist will help keep us humble? So first, why is humility important? There were a lot of Greeks in Jesus' day, and there are a lot of Americans in our day for whom humility is not only not important, but positively repulsive. It is not the way to get ahead. How can you get to the top if lowliness is a value? But the Christian hedonist responds and says, what top do you want to get to? How high do you really want to go? Maybe in hungering after power and prestige and possessions and popularity. Maybe you've sold your soul for a bowl of pottage. Maybe God really has what the soul is hungry for. And maybe, like C.S. Lewis says, we're like children satisfied to make the best mud pies in the slums because we can't imagine what a day at the sea is like. Humility is important because it is God's pathway to infinite joy. Let's listen to what God says. Proverbs 16, 19. It's better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Better? Really? Why? 1 Peter 5, 5 gives the answer. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Poor humility is better than rich pride because God is against proud people. And if God is against you, who are you going to turn to for help? That is a dreadful prospect. But he gives grace. He gives grace to the lowly. God is watching like a jealous lioness over all his lowly cubs. Because Isaiah 66, 2 says, Thus says the Lord, This is the man to whom I will look. He that is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And not only is he watching over these lowly cubs like a jealous lioness, he is close. He comes in close to revive the lowly when they're about to fall. God loves to magnify the greatness of his grace by condescending as far as he can to the lowly. Isaiah 57:15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite. What a promise! You can't be too insignificant for God to reach you. God loves 
to dwell with the lowly. That's bad news. Bad news for the proud and self-reliant, isn't it? But good news for the broken sinner. Now, the Bible goes right on singing the praises of humility. In the words of Jesus, you know all these texts. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs and theirs only is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, the lamb-like, for they're going to inherit the whole city of Minneapolis and be mayor. Unless you turn and become like little children, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He who humbles himself like a little child will be the greatest in the kingdom. Or whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. All those from the Gospel of Matthew. The watchword of the 70s in America was... He who exalts himself will be exalted, and he who humbles himself will be humble. Now, I don't know whether this emphasis on self-assertion is going to endure through the 80s. I suspect not, because, number one, we live in a very fickle culture which has always got to change. And number two, you can't write a bestseller unless you say something new and different. So that I suspect that what we're going to find are book titles something like this, Lowly Jogging, The Joy of Coming in Last. (laughs) Or possibly for all the burned-out executives, Is the Corporate Ladder Worth the Ulcers? Subtitled, How to be happy on the bottom rung. Or perhaps a new diet booklet. Contrition conditioning. How to get thin by laying aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Well, the opinions of man, how to be happy, shift from decade to decade. But the Word of God, like a sovereign sage goes on from age to age, unruffled, and says, if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled, and if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. And it will always be true. So I conclude on the first point, it is very, very important to be humble. God opposes the proud, ah, but he gives grace to the lowly. The second question then becomes all the more important. What is it? What's the nature of biblical humility? What does it look like when we see it? Let's look at a few texts first and then try to sum up a composite picture. The first text I want to look at is 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul puts a tremendous roadblock in the way of pride with this text. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you then received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? Well, that's that's just devastating to pride. In other words, the recognition that everything we have is a free gift 
is a tremendous roadblock to pride. It is unreasonable to boast in a free gift. When I give my children a gift on Christmas morning and they take it and go over to their sibling and say, see what I got and you didn't get, I want to smash them. Because that's ugly, it's mean, it's wrong. You can't boast in a free gift, can you? We all know that's wrong. And God has given us everything free. And therefore we can't boast in it. So the humble person is not stingy or miserly or overly possessive. He's not ostentatious about what he has. He feels and he knows that everything he has is a gift. At the most, he's a trustee. And God has simply loaned him what he has to handle for him until he comes back. And therefore, boasting in possessions is out of the question. Here's another text that gives us an insight into biblical humility. Luke 18, 9 to 14. You all know this parable of Jesus. You need not look it up. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank thee that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this this tax collector here. In fact, I tithe twice a week, I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat on his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus comments, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. A humble person is keenly aware of his sinfulness and very sorry about it. Therefore, he's not presumptuous towards God or man. He knows that in himself he has no rights to approach the Holy of Holies. He doesn't even dare to lift up his eyes on his own authority. But now before we spell out the implications of that for daily life, let's look at one more text in Luke, the chapter before, Luke 17, 7 through 10, another parable. Jesus says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and gird yourself and serve me till I eat and drink and afterwards you shall eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that is commanded of you, say... We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. You cannot obey your way up 
out of humility. When you have done all that is commanded of you, say, I am but an unworthy servant. No matter how much we grow in sanctification, we will always be people for whom it is fitting and proper to be lowly and humble. Now, how shall we take all of that and describe in a composite picture the humble person? Here's the way I would try to do it. First of all, Christian humility sees life and breath and everything as a gift from God, an absolutely free gift. And therefore, the humble person is shot through with gratitude instead of grumbling. Not only that, though, not only is everything a gift, but because of our sin, everything is an absolutely undeserved gift. The Christian knows that his life hangs by a scarlet cord of mercy and mercy alone. And therefore, the humble person is not inclined to demand his own personal rights. He knows that if he were treated that way, life would be over for him. So he's not presumptuous or insolent. Instead, he's unassuming and meek. The humble person has the feeling. Now, humility is not something you can just grit your teeth and will to be. It springs from something inside, and that's why I use the word feeling. The humble person has the feeling that his natural place in life is to serve, instead of feeling that his natural place is to be served. He feels much more natural in disposing of or displaying honor than he does in receiving honor. There's a kind of uneasiness that comes into the heart of the humble person when he is unduly honored. He doesn't put his thumbs here and say, well, of course. In fact, even when the humble person has done well in his service, the compliments he gets are a, a bit awkward for him, not because he artificially denies his competence, but because he's so keenly aware that everything he has achieved, he's achieved by grace, and therefore he so much wants God to get the credit rather than himself. The humble Christian does not crave the praise of men. He longs for God to be praised and for God to be honored and for truth to be honored. And finally, a person who has been humbled and secured by the gospel is very willing to admit when he's wrong and ready to acknowledge error. Humility never tries to save face but is always ready and quick to admit its finitude and imperfection and stubbornness. That's biblical humility as best as I can, can infer it from the Scriptures. That's the lifestyle that every person who is a child of God will love. 
When you hear that, you will say, oh, I want to be like that. Now, you won't say, well, yeah, that's, that's the way I am. We are all on the road, aren't we? Nobody is where I just described yet. But a Christian is marked by a hunger to be farther down that road. And when he hears it described, he says, Oh, that's what I want. And the mouth of his soul waters for it. That's the way you can tell whether you're a Christian or not. Not whether you're perfect, but whether you're hungry. So that brings us to the third point. How do we get farther down that road? And here's where Christian hedonism is going to be a great help, I think. I remember January 1979, I was in Pasadena, California on Colorado Avenue at a Mexican restaurant. I don't remember the name of it. And I was there with my friend Steve Amador. And he had just bought for me the best Mexican meal I had ever tasted. And uh, we were finished sitting there by ourselves in this little cubicle. and, And I looked at him. And I said, Steve, thank you very much. That was really good. And he said, it's my pleasure. And being two sworn Christian hedonists, we sat there for another hour discussing the significance of that sentence, it's my pleasure, in that context. Why has the custom arisen to respond to compliments and thanks with the phrase, it's my pleasure. Why does it's my pleasure, with a raised hand, like this, mean virtually the same as, oh, think nothing of it. They do, you know. That's what it means, I think. I think the reason is very profound. And we haven't thought about it much, probably. I think the reason is this. When you do something good for the pleasure there is in it, you don't feel the same craving for compliments when you're done as if you do something good under some kind of external compulsion, say, to avoid the censure of your peers, your pious peers. Probably... If you do something under compulsion, you'll want to be repaid with money or with enough praise to make you feel good about it, right? But the person who loves to do good, who loves mercy, as the Bible says, do justice and love mercy, the person who loves mercy, delights to do acts of kindness, why, when he's finished... He feels amply rewarded through the fruits of his labor and is rejoicing and therefore doesn't feel that inner compulsion where are these compliments, where's the thanks, where's the applause? Doesn't feel it. They'll be superfluous to him. His way of saying, you don't need to make much over my act of kindness is to say, it's my pleasure. I have been amply rewarded with pleasure. Now, The upshot of all that is that Steve and I saw, as you now see, I'm sure, that Christian hedonism is a great aid to humility, right? Christian hedonism says, make pleasure your aim in all that you do. I believe you should. Humility says, don't crave any compliments, be content and satisfied 
feel awkward if you receive undue compliments. So, when you look at those two things, when we discover that doing good because the pleasure there is in it reduces our need for compliments and praise, therefore, it's clear that Christian hedonism, which teaches us to seek that pleasure, is a great hindrance to pride and a great help to humility. Christian hedonism teaches us to be motivated in such a way that when our deed is done, we don't have any craving for the praise of men. And therefore, Christian hedonism is a great hindrance to pride and a great help to humility. Now, before I quit, I better say this. Somebody, no doubt, because they haven't heard all my other things that I've said about Christian hedonism over the past five or six years, is saying, how can you talk as if it's right to be motivated by a desire for our own good? How can you say, make pleasure your aim, when the Bible clearly says, take up your cross and deny yourself? I'm sure somebody out there must be thinking that. Listen, I got good news for you. Jesus didn't mean that. Read the whole text. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Why? For whoever would save his life, and who doesn't want to do that, will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? The whole premise of that argument is hedonistic. Nobody wants to lose his life. Everybody wants profit, right? So here's how to save your life and have infinite joy. Lose it in a life of love. Every sacrifice that Jesus Christ asks us to make, He asks us to make for something better. And that's hedonism. Self-denial? Sure. Deny yourself the mud pies in the slums so that you can have the day at the sea. Jesus asked the rich young ruler one time to deny himself, right? Rich young ruler comes and wants to know how to have eternal life. And Jesus says, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and follow me. Now, what should have been the motive of the rich young ruler? What should have gone through his head and into his heart that caused him to obey? Some kind of disinterested benevolence for the poor or for Jesus? The Bible doesn't know one word of disinterested benevolence. Jesus told two parables to explain what the motive should be for selling everything you have, giving it to the poor, and following Jesus. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, he covered it up, and then in his joy, he goes and he sells everything he has. And he buys that field. The rich young ruler should have sold everything he has because it would make him happier. Period. That's why 
because of the prospect of following Jesus into the kingdom. is so exciting and so joyful, everything that he had should have been as nothing, just like it was for the man who found that treasure. I thought this morning as I was going over this message of a man who is uh, looking through a used car lot. He finds this rusty 77 Chevette. And they want $1,500 for it. And while he's poking around, he sees the seats are lined with $1,000 bills. So he goes back in there and he says, who owned that car out there? Oh, some eccentric millionaire. He just, he was nutty. He gave us the car. We're trying to sell it. Well, I'll uh, give you a, what do you want for that car? $1,500. Okay, give it to you right here. $1,500. What? That car's not worth $1,500. I'll give it to you. Now, if he were buying that car for some poor friend of his, you might say, well, that's uh, a great sacrifice he's made, right? What a sacrificial person. Baloney, he's not sacrificial. The car's got money in it. $10,000 probably or more, maybe $100,000. is not that exactly what Jesus said? Parable number two. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls or cars who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and he bought it. The only reason Jesus asks us to renounce our little plastic beads of money and ambition and sensual pleasures is because he's got a pearl for us. I hope you're all hedonists. I hope you all see how biblical Christian hedonism is. There is no such thing as ultimate self-sacrifice in the kingdom of God. Even Jesus, whose love was manifested most purely at the cross, did what, according to Hebrews 12? He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Hedonist that he was. Christian hedonism is simply a fancy way of saying we ought not be content to do anything under compulsion. We ought always to make it our aim to be cheerful givers, cheerful lovers, cheerful servants. I conclude with a letter. This comes on as a shock to lots of my students when I was at Bethel. They never heard anybody tell them that they should make it their aim to be happy in the world. Uh, and I told everyone I could that they should and you should. One student was thoughtful enough to write me a response and he said, I quote, I disagree with your position that love seeks or is motivated by its own pleasure. Are you familiar with Dorothy Day? She's a very old woman who has devoted her life to loving others, especially the poor, displaced, and downtrodden. And her experience of loving when there was no joy has led her to say this, love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing. End quote. I wrote back to my friend a letter, and I want to close by reading it to you. Here's what I said. First of all, don't jump to the conclusion, Ron, that there is no joy in things that are harsh and dreadful. There are mountain climbers who have spent sleepless nights on the faces of cliffs, 
have lost fingers and toes in sub-zero temperatures and have gone through horrible misery to reach a peak. They say it is harsh and dreadful. But if you ask them why they do it, the answer will come back in various forms. There is an exhilaration in the soul that feels so good it is worth all the pain. If this is how it is with mountain climbing, cannot the same be true of love? Is it not rather an indictment of our own worldliness that we are more inclined to sense exhilaration at mountain climbing than at conquering the precipices of unlove in our own lives and in society? Yes, love is often a harsh and dreadful thing. You may have to sell all you have. But I do not see how a person who cherishes what is good and admires Jesus can help but feel a sense of joyful exhilaration when, by grace, he is able to love another person. Now let me approach Dorothy Day's situation in another way. Let's pretend that I'm one of those poor people that she's trying to help at great cost to herself. I think a conversation might go like this. Poor man, why are you doing this for me, Miss Day? Miss Day, because I love you. What do you mean you love me? I don't have anything to offer. I'm not worth loving. Perhaps, but there are no application forms for my love. I learned that from Jesus. What I mean is I want to help you because Jesus has helped me so much. Oh, so you're trying to satisfy your wants, right? I suppose so, if you want to put it like that. One of my deepest wants is to make you a happy and purposeful person. Does it upset you, Miss Day, that I am happier and that I feel more purposeful since you've come? Heavens, no! What could make me happier? So you really spend all these sleepless nights here for what makes you happy, don't you? Well, if I say yes, someone will misunderstand me. They'll think that I don't care for you at all, but only for myself. Poor man. But won't you say it at least for me? Yes, I'll say it for you. I work for what brings me the greatest joy. Your joy. Thank you. Now I know that you love me.